This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm pleased to welcome Thomas J. Donahoe Ochoa, visiting assistant professor at Haverford College, to discuss his new book, Unfreedom for All, How the World's Injustices Harm You, published by Oxford University Press in 2019. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. Thanks so much, Susan. It's great to be here, and I've really enjoyed hearing your other podcasts. Uh, it's a, it's 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 such a uh, it's such a remarkable gift to be able to read these books and then get to talk to the uh, authors. This is a very ambitious work of political theory uh, that argues that structural injustice subjects us all to arbitrary power, not just the victims and not just the perpetrators, uh, as had, having an effect on them. And, and before we interrogate the main claims and get into the details, I'd like you to just tell me a little bit about your scholarship and how you came to write this book on justice and also push us back to thinking about justice. Well, the book started, the project in which I ultimately culminated in the book started a long time ago now. I think you could see it as actually having started at least back in 2007, if not even before that. And it began when I started thinking seriously about various injustices or allegations of injustice that are out there in the world, things like race, white supremacy, gender, male supremacy, severe poverty worldwide in a world in which lots of people have plenty of funds to go take vacations on the beach. Other people are getting by on less than $2 a day. So I started thinking about those probably even more than 15 years ago in a rather serious way. But the part of the reason it took me so long was that I realized that in order really to explore them, and especially to think what to do about them once you'd explored them, one thing you had to do was to shut up and listen to the people who are their victims, to hear their experiences, to hear how they see things, to try to understand things from their perspective about how these injustices work and also what to do about them. So it took me a while, partly because I needed to do a lot of that research to shut up and listen and dig in and listen to what the victims have to say about these things. And from there, then, I started learning about all kinds of different injustices, partly because I thought that really to understand one or two, it helps to understand others as well. So I started exploring other injustices as well, even getting into things, although the book doesn't talk about it, like climate injustice, in addition to the ones I've already mentioned, race, gender, severe poverty. So from there, basically, I then started thinking about, well, <clears throat> what is it that uh, would be useful to say about this? And also to think about my own position. Many people, I think, uh, tend to think of themselves as not really victims of any particular injustice. So a lot of people tend to think of themselves as just basically privileged persons who aren't the victim of any injustice. But one thing I wanted to explore was, is there a sense in which for probably most, if not all people, actually they are victims of some injustices. So I also started looking at a range of injustices in order to dig into that. So that's basically where the book was coming from, A lot, some of my motivations. And what I ended up doing was basically, once I had dug into it, 
coming up with a few things that I wanted to engage with and to basically offer alternatives to. So I think that a lot of people tend to think of injustices in terms of a dualism of victim and non-victim. They tend to think you've got the victims on one side and you've got the non-victims on the other. And the victims are unfree, they are oppressed, and they are obligated to resist the injustice that victimize them, often for reasons of duties of self-respect and so forth. On the other hand, you've got the non-victims who are free, who are privileged, who are sort of the center or the core of society. And I wanted to remind people that it's more complex than that, that there actually are also bystanders who aren't uh, either victims, but nor perpetrators. So there's more than just two categories here. It's more complex. There's at least three. So we have victims, perpetrators, and bystanders. And I also wanted to say as well that a lot of people are actually, even if they think they're not victims of any injustice, may well be victims of injustices that they haven't thought about. So that was one thing. Another thing was that people tend to think that victims have what I was calling these duties of self-respect that require them to resist the injustice. And they think that non-duties, non-victims have duties of altruism to resist injustice. So if you're a non-victim of injustice, people think, then you have altruistic reasons, reasons of being a morally good person to resist injustice, but probably not other reasons. Basically, your real reason for resisting injustice if you're a non-victim is altruism or being good, doing good. And I wanted to explore how everyone has self-interested reasons to resist injustice. Everyone. So the victims, of course, but also the perpetrators and third-party bystanders. And another thing that I wanted to engage with was that there's a widespread tendency to think that only one strategy works in dealing with injustice. You hear all these people saying, we've got to do it this way. It's got to be, everybody has to get on board with this, or every no, everybody has to get on board with that, or no, everybody has to get on board with this strategy. And I wanted to look at how actually there are many strategies out there, and they're all contributing something of value and of use to attempts to resist and ultimately abolish injustices. No, thanks for the nice overview. And 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 before we get to you have a very nice way, for me anyway, of entering the book through these these three beliefs that form a, a paradox. But before we get there, just tell me a little bit about the audience for this book. It, it's written in a way that's very, very accessible. I did work on Rawls for a dissertation eons ago, and I can also recognize that level of scholarship there. But but who who were you addressing here? Who were you trying to argue to? Well, I think that the book has two core audiences. So on the one hand are scholars, theorists, who are trying to build theories of how systematic injustices, like, say, white supremacy or male supremacy or global severe poverty work, uh, how they harm the victims, how they're perpetuated, and also of what to do about them, how to challenge them, how to try to remedy them, and ultimately, in many cases, abolish them. So that's one audience that the book is aiming at, core audience. The other core audience that the book is aiming at is what you could call uh, scholars engaged in the project of the Rawlsian project of theorizing about justice, and within that camp, it's especially aiming at those of them, scholars of working within the Rawlsian program of researching justice, who are interested in thinking about injustices, who want to apply the Rawlsian principles to think about what to do about injustices. So those are the two core audiences that the book is trying to speak to. And then sort of more broadly, there are people sort of on the periphery of each of those two audiences that I hope it'll also engage as well. Oh, that's great. L let's start with the three beliefs that form the paradox. Um, you start out by saying that there are people who have imagined that it's it's necessary to use identities uh, in order to fight injustice. And you map the that particular belief uh, onto popular journalism, NPR, the New York Times, uh, Fox News, Breibart. Uh, I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about what that 
first core belief is uh, before we move to the second one about identities as well. So, yeah. So uh, one way of thinking about the book and what it's trying to do is to is to think about it as responding to this three beliefs, which I think are pretty widespread today around the world. And there are beliefs about both who is, suffers injustice and also how to respond to, how to try to remedy injustices. So this first belief, which you were mentioning, basically says that if we're going to combat injustices that are done to... So the targets of the injustice are collective identity groups, say women as women or poor people as poor people. Then in order to combat those injustices, we need to use those collective identities. We need to see people in terms of those identities and see that identity as the most salient or important thing about a person upon whom we, to whom we attribute that particular identity. And I think this is a widespread belief. You can see it being used in a lot of media organizations like the New York Times or The Guardian in the United Kingdom. But also, it's not just media outlets which are considered to be sort of liberal or on the left. It's also, I think, pretty widespread on the right as well. Fox News or Breitbart have increasingly been thinking about using identities in order to combat what they see as injustices, injustices, say, done to the common people, for example, of populism. And so they, too, are now increasingly using this belief, which says to combat injustices done to identity groups, you have to see people, the victims, primarily in terms of those identities. If that is uh, a problem, then the second uh belief that you say is also out there is that even thinking about these identities and focusing on a singular identity can actually cause and help perpetuate uh, injustice. So can you expand a little bit more on who believes that second belief and um, maybe say a little bit more about it? Yeah. So the second belief basically is what starts to turn the first one because it combines with the first one to then create a paradox. Because what it says is that, well, the thing about identity-based injustices is that if nobody believed or in identities or if nobody were to use them, then identity-based injustices wouldn't happen. They wouldn't occur. They can only occur if people think in terms of, think of people in terms of having these singular or most salient identities. If they didn't, this belief says, then those, those injustices just wouldn't exist. They wouldn't, and they certainly wouldn't be perpetuated if everybody just stopped believing in collective identities. So on the one hand, you've got this belief that says to struggle against these identity-based injustices, you need to use identities, singular identities, see people in terms of a singular identity. But on the other hand, if you do that, then you're actually going to be perpetuating the injustice. Because if we wanted to get rid of the injustices, or if we didn't use those singular identities, then the injustices just wouldn't continue. Uh, you mentioned Frank Wilderson and Afro-pessimism as you're describing that second belief. And mm -hmm. uh, Frank was on the podcast two weeks ago. So I'll just ask you to elaborate a little bit more in the context of how Afro-pessimism maps onto this second belief. Yeah, so I think that what you get is there Afro-pessimism would be one movement, which I think definitely embraces both of these beliefs. And that's part of, I think, of what makes them pessimistic. They think that on the one hand, in order to struggle against, as they certainly say we need to, injustices like that done by, I guess you could call it anti-black racism, you need to see people in terms of singular identities. But the paradox is that in doing so, it's actually going to be perpetuating the injustice. So we have then, it's partly why it's pessimistic, is that we must struggle against it. To do so, we need to see people in terms of singular identities, but in doing so, in terms of in seeing them in terms of singular identities, we are actually perpetuating the injustice. And that, I think, is a big part of what makes it a pessimistic point of view. The, the last belief focuses on not using tools that have been used by perpetrators 
of injustice. So can can you elaborate a little bit on that to bring us to how we put these three together? Um, you've got an incredible insight about the difference between remedying and diagnosing, but um, let's get the third one out and and then you know tell us a little bit more about about how you put them together. Yeah. So the third belief, which I think is also pretty widespread, is just that when you're dealing with, when you're trying to challenge injustices, you shouldn't be using tools which are going to perpetuate them. You should always be trying to use tools which aren't going to perpetuate them at the very least. It's kind of like the physicians first do no harm, right? In this case, use tools that aren't going to perpetuate the injustice if your aim is to challenge, remedy, and abolish them. And so these three beliefs together then create this paradox. On the one, the first one again says that we, in challenging injustices, we need to use singular identities. The second belief says, but the problem with using singular identities is that they actually perpetuate the injustices. And the third one says, but in challenging injustices, you just should not use tools that perpetuate injustices. So what we have is what philosophers call um, an inconsistent triad of beliefs. It seems like you can accept any two of these beliefs, but it does seem like you can't accept all three at once, even though each of the three beliefs seems to be very widespread, widely held. So what should we do? Should we reject one of them, the first one or the second one or the third one? And that's where a lot of these debates among different groups come out. So I think that you see, for example, uh, many in, say, liberal left media um, have basically been saying things like, well, actually, it's incorrect to say that uh, using singular identities will always perpetuate injustices. If we could just get people to accept and affirm sing every singular identity, then we could eventually abolish the injustices. But other people argue against that, saying, no, singular identities are always going to perpetuate injustice. So many say, uh, working within the Marxist tradition, think along those lines. They say the problem is this identity talk. That's what constantly is going to perpetuate injustices. It distracts us from what's really important. So you get these different debates among different groups who think that it's no of the three beliefs in the paradox, it's this one that should be rejected. No, it's this one or no, it's this one. But you have a sort of solution for it. You say that it's one thing to use these tools to diagnose injustice as long as we don't use it as a remedy. And that, for you, begins to help solve the paradox of how to put these three things together. That's right. So the approach that the book proposes we take is to say, well, maybe we don't have to choose. Maybe we don't have to reject any of these three beliefs. Maybe we could basically have our cake and eat it. But the only way to do that, it's suggesting, is to make a distinction, which is to distinguish between using identities or really singular identities. So again, this is singular identities are seeing people as primarily in terms of a particular identity group, the attribution to them of being a member of a particular collective identity. And what it says is that maybe when we diagnose injustices, it makes sense to use singular identities because most of the systematic injustices were interested in are actually done to people as members of particular collective identities. So in figuring out how an injustice works, what kind of injustice it is, how it works, what are the mechanisms by which it's perpetuated, what I'm calling diagnosing injustice, then often it makes a lot of sense to think in terms of singular identities. But that's distinct from thinking about remedies for those injustices. Once you've diagnosed an injustice, then there's another task, which is to figure out, okay, what are the best remedies for that injustice now that we've diagnosed it that way as being, for example, say, global white supremacy, or maybe no, it's something like national Jim Crow. Those are two different diagnoses of an injustice. And those would give you two different remedies or two sets of different remedies because they're differing diagnoses. And the book suggests, well, maybe then for a lot of diagnoses of injustice, it makes sense 
to use singular identities. But maybe for many remedies, actually, we don't need to use singular identities. And in this way, then, we can escape the paradox. We don't have to say we must reject one of the beliefs. We can actually accept all three and just say maybe on the remedies side, in fact, we don't need to use singular identities, at least for all remedies, whereas maybe for diagnosing injustices, we do need to use singular identities. So that's what the book's proposing as a way of escaping from this paradox of identities and injustices. No, it, 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 it's very helpful and very well explained in, in the book. So the book is divided into four parts. The, mm-hmm. the first part is, is sort of sets the landscape of where political theory is right now. The second introduces unfreedom for all, which is your preferred way of thinking about justice. Uh, the third part diagnoses the global injustices and the harm that they do. And the last part offers um, a theory of solidarity. So and so this is a dense book and it's going to be hard to try to summarize it. So for the listeners, you should buy the book because we're not going to be able to cover everything here, but we're going to try hard to give everyone a real sense of the the depth of the book, the nuance, and the interesting questions that it's taking up. So so Tom, let's start with 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 where political theory is uh, on the subject of justice. You mentioned Rawls, a theory of justice, 1971, put justice at the center of liberalism, at least by title. So give us a sense of how you see where political theory is right now. Well, uh, I think that at least at the time, just before the book was published, what you had was, again, and this goes back again to the two core audiences of the book, I think you could see at least a big section or a a slice of political theory as sort of having at the center, the authoritative center, a Rawlsian approach to thinking about justice. So just to talk a little bit about what Rawls said. Rawls said that one of the main tasks of theorizing about politics, at least what we should do in politics, so normative theorizing about politics, is to think about what social justice requires. And he basically said that after an elaborate argument, that there are three main principles of justice and that they basically map on to the three principles or values of the French Revolution, liberty, equality, and what the French back then called fraternity, what we would today call solidarity. And so Rawls basically says that uh, this means that we need the political liberties, we need equal liberty for everybody, then we need equality of opportunity, and then The solidarity part is that we need what he calls the difference principle, which is to say that when there are inequalities, economic inequalities, social inequalities in in distribution, then the people who are on the receiving end, right, the people who are the least well off in that inequality, it has to be better for them than any other at least feasible distribution we could come up with. So that's his solidarity principle. So this Rawlsian program for thinking about social injustice, uh, social justice, I say, has for a long time been at the very center of at least much political theory. But what we've also had is a group of scholars, thinkers, theorists interested in actually diagnosing injustices who have been doing so and have been arguing against the Rawlsian or at the Rawlsian center that they need to get more serious about the diagnosis of injustice. It's not enough just to talk about uh, how we should think of justice in ideal terms or in what Rawls calls a well-ordered society. We should also be thinking of what justice means and requires in the not well-ordered societies that we have right now. So what does it mean to see justice done or to reduce injustice here and now in societies like this? And so this group, I argue, has been working hard, but it hasn't been at the center of political theory, or at least of a big slice of political theory in the way that the Rawlsian project has been. So again, this is the two core audiences of the book, and they're represented by these two slices, select sections of political theory right now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it 
a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. No, and I appreciated that section because uh, in a political theorist don't generally do a lit review, but it's always nice when somebody does a terrain review and a sort of intellectual history of what has been on the table, what has been challenged, what has been challenged in a way that's less or more convincing. And I really appreciated how you both summarized and explained it and also were very clear about where you stand. Um, so, and where you stand is more part two of this book. So I think that's where we should go. So unfreedom for all uh, is, is something that sounds familiar right? This idea that we are all harmed, we are all in this together. There's some forms of socialism that that take that position. Explain what unfreedom for all is, how it defines what and is what is not oppression, um, just to get us started with understanding more what you are arguing. Yeah. Well, this comes out of another of the motivating uh, aims of the book, which is that I th you're right. People will chant in the streets, no one is free while others are oppressed. <clears throat> um, Solomon Burke has the song, right? None of us is free. None of us is free. Well, one of us is chained. And that is seen by many on what you can call the left, you know, people who are out there arguing that there are many injustices in the world and that they need to be challenged. They need to be abolished. So I guess you could conceive of the left as having those as their core commitments. And another is that they frequently use this slogan, no one is free while others are oppressed. But I think that when people start to examine the slogan, when they start to think about, is that really true that no one is free while others are oppressed? Many people conclude that, you know, it's a nice fiction, but it's actually not the case. People say, you know, Stalin was the head of maybe the most oppressive regime anywhere. And yet a lot of people think, I think he was free. So there's, I think, a widespread tendency on the left to think that it's a good slogan for using in marches or on the streets because it motivates people. It gets them excited. It gives them a reason for thinking, even though I'm not a victim, this is why I should care because my freedom's at stake too. But I think that when people actually examine the slogan, they tend to think that really what it rests on are two bad arguments, one of one of two or maybe both. One saying that really the kind of unfreedom that we have here basically means that you're unfree unless and until everybody else is treated according to all the principles of morality. So basically that everybody is always given equal respect and then you're unfree unless it's the case that everybody is given that. But the problem is most people don't think that that's an unfreedom that a lot of people are very concerned about. They're not really worried that about their being unfree just because somebody on the other side of the planet may not be being treated with equal respect. So that kind of ideal unfreedom, a lot of people think hmm, it's either just a fantasy that nobody really cares about, or it's just, you know, not a conception of freedom really worth worrying about, or at least of unfreedom. On the other hand, there's, of course, uh, Martin Luther King's claim that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. The idea basically being that all injustices have a kind of a totalizing pressure. That is, they start small, but they always, they're kind of like a cancer, which is going to grow if you let it grow, if you don't intervene to try to stop it. And so a lot of people would probably use the metaphor of the global war on terror, uh, the George W. Bush administration, you know, so they start what some people think of as an unjust war, say Iraq and so forth, and the endless occupations, the endless wars. But then what happens? Well, there's actually blowback from those wars. What do they do? They end up saying, well, now we have all these tanks that we don't need because we've moved to new tanks. So what are we going to do with the tanks? Ah, let's give them to police departments in the United States. And then what happens? What do those police departments use those tanks to do? Well, they start to use them in ways that many people say contribute to perpetuate things like white supremacy. Uh, we're seeing those arguments now. 
with Black Lives Matter, for example. So a lot of people think that injustice works like that. It starts small, but it's kind of like a cancer. If you don't stop it, it's going to eventually take over everything. But I think that a lot of people, when you look at it, say, not the case. I mean, yes, there are some injustices and where maybe there are sort of those tendencies, but in general, no. They do have bounds, and they're not going to ultimately victimize everybody, a lot of people think. So again, people think this is another reason for thinking that unfreedom for all, no one is free while others are oppressed. It sounds good as a slogan, but really when you dig into it, it's more or less just a fiction. And what my book is trying to do is to say, actually, there is a sense of freedom and unfreedom which everybody has reason to care about, which real people, not just philosophers, real people care about and want to avoid, which is at stake when there is an oppression that your society is doing. So the main aim of the book is to work out what that kind of unfreedom is and to show that it's always going to affect everybody in any society that engages in systematic injustice or oppression. Uh, You mentioned contemporary events, and I definitely want to get there because as I was reading the book, uh, lots of questions, either things you mentioned or alluded to, resonated differently than when you wrote them in 2019 because uh, we're discussing this uh, during the second, maybe now we're into the third weeks of uh, protest in the United States. But just just to get at unfreedom for all, you, you... you begin with climate change. It's not one of the examples that you actually develop in the book, but you offer that as perhaps the best way for people to understand that even the person who does not need to live by the polluted water or isn't the victim of uh, uh, uh placing toxic waste in disproportionately poor neighborhoods will ultimately be affected. Um, Is there another example that you think can help people wrap their heads around this idea that we all have a fundamental welfare interest? It's something that everybody possesses, and this is the thing that is harmed when we, um, uh, when we are, 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 not necessarily the victims, not necessarily the perpetrators, but you you say we're we're scathed by the sort of flames of structural injustice. Yeah. So again, one thing that the book is trying to do is to say we need to get beyond the victim-perpetrator distinction and think about other categories of people in relation to injustices. So the one I especially focus on is bystanders. So these are people who are neither directly victimized by the injustice Um, So for something like male supremacy, they're not non-males, they would be males. But they are also not its perpetrators. And I argue that for all injustices, there is always somebody within the party of those who are not the victims who are also not the perpetrators. And so in the case of male supremacy, arguably there are some males who are not direct perpetrators of the injustice or for severe poverty, arguably there are some non-poor people who are not perpetrators of the injustices of global severe poverty. And so what the book is trying to say that even for those people, so the people who are neither victims nor perpetrators, and for the perpetrators, there are arguments out there explaining why they're unfree, which we can get into if you like. They basically rely on ideas from the philosopher Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel and Frederick Douglass as well, worked them out in his discussion of the fight with Covey. But anyway, there I want to focus on how bystanders, who are neither victims nor perpetrators, are also made unfree by systematic injustices their societies do. And the basic argument works like this. It says that for systematic injustices, take something like severe poverty, global severe poverty, for example, for them to endure, for them to continue to reproduce themselves, to continue to do the harms that they do to their victims, in this case, the severely poor worldwide, what they need to do, the system in general, what it must do is it must suppress resistance 
to the injustice. So it has to have ways of stopping people from engaging in the kinds of resistance that would be needed to abolish the injustice. Otherwise, the injustice will just be abolished and will crumble to the ground. So all injustices have sort of, if they're going to continue existing, have all these various mechanisms for stopping people from resisting them. And this is mechanisms aimed not just at the victims, who obviously have lots of incentives to resist the injustice, but also others, both mechanisms for stopping maybe some perpetrators who are having second thoughts, thinking maybe we should stop this thing, but also third-party bystanders who aren't really directly involved either as victim or perpetrator, also stop them from trying to resist the injustice. And there are many ways in which this occurs. So for example, police brutality is certainly one. When people try to resist injustice, you get police brutality in the streets. That would be a form of suppressing resistance to the injustice. But there are lots of others as well. Um, For example, treating resistance as sort of a laughing matter. That's not serious. That's nothing important. Why are you engaged in that? You know, people complaining about that kind of injustice, that's just not, not anything that serious people would focus on or worry about. And so you sort of marginalize it. You say that that's not something that serious people spend their time on. And those who have been engaged in solidarity movements, they know this reaction. They've heard it plenty of times, probably in many fora. And so you have all these different ways in which injustices suppress resistance and especially would-be resistance to the injustice. But there's a word for social institutions, and especially, as I argue, central social institutions like all systematic injustices, think of, say, severe poverty or white supremacy, for example. I would argue those are central social institutions in societies like ours. We have a word for central social institutions having these means of suppressing resistance to them, and that's authoritarianism. But if you're subjected to authoritarianism, right, to authoritarian tactics, that means that your freedom also is undermined. You have a kind of uh, freedom which it's itself being undermined by that suppression of your resistance or your would-be resistance. Just knowing that if you did engage in resistance, it would be suppressed in that way is a kind of an arbitrary interference in your rights to engage in political debate, discussion, pushing, pressure, and so forth. If you are subjected to that kind of arbitrary interference or authoritarianism, then you are unfree. And that's unfree in a sense of unfreedom, which a lot of people care about and want to avoid. So that's the basic argument. The idea is that all injustices, in order to endure, have to suppress resistance, but we have a word for central social institutions like injustices that suppress resistance to them, and that's authoritarianism. But if you're subjected to authoritarianism, then you're subjected to arbitrary interference. But if you are, then you are unfree in a sense of negative freedom, or in this case, unfreedom, that is freedom from, you're not free from arbitrary interference. And therefore, you as a bystander, and also you as a, if you're a perpetrator or you or if you're a victim, everybody's subjected to this suppression of resistance, and therefore everybody's unfree. Now, that's very helpful. And you mentioned police brutality, and obviously because I'm reading this book, not when you wrote it, but, but now, it jumped out at me very early on in the book that you, you used an example in which you said that you know, we all understand the responsibilities, I'm going to paraphrase you, of individual police officers who have killed unarmed black men. We all get it. They're guilty. And we see it that way. But you say, in fact, very few people see themselves as having some sort of obligation to unite in solidarity against the injustice. They were because they were neither the victim nor the perpetrator. And it's easy to identify this individual who did this thing. And this just uh, stood out to me as, as, as a really interesting contribution to the book and, and maybe helped me better understand what is happening in the protests and how people are positioning themselves in the protest. A lot of protest. Facebook group names use the word allies. They Mm. say, we're your allies. Therefore, accepting this uh, 
identity of one group as the victim and denying, I think, what you're trying to impress upon us, which is no, it's not simply somebody else's victim, it, uh, victimhood. It, it's, it's ours too. And I wondered, as you look at the protests and the kinds of things that people who are protesting are expressing, whether you see some aspects of unfreedom for all in the way that there has been more solidarity, maybe not only of the allied variety, but maybe of the scathed variety as well? I think there could be, yes. I mean, it's tricky because, again, I think that when you get out there in the streets, I think that a lot of people just go into the no one is free while others are oppressed sort of in the sort of in the mode of just thinking of it as, you know, here's a slogan that helps us and to think about our obligations, our responsibilities. And it's a question whether or not when they leave the protest and go back home and think about it, are they still believing it? Or do they think, well, that's what I think when I'm out on the street, but when I'm sitting down reflecting upon it in my armchair, maybe I don't really believe that. But I do think that it could well be that some people anyway are starting to think of themselves as neither just victims um, nor perpetrators, but as bystanders, and yet who are in some sense being harmed by the injustice, even though it's clearly, it's not the harm being done to the victims. And the book, I want to be quite clear in the book that there is an important distinction between the harms that an injustice does to the people victimized by it and the harms that it does to others. Clearly, there are special harms injustices do, and basically those are the core harms of injustice, which they do only to the victims. But there are other harms, and the one I'm thinking of is this harm of being subjected to this kind of suppression of resistance, which then uh, subjects you to arbitrary interference, and that's a kind of unfreedom, which I do think perhaps a large number of the protesters are sort of thinking of themselves as being harmed by, and I call them the scathe. So they're not the victims. They're not done the victimization harm of injustice, but they are done this harm of unfreedom. And I think it may be that a number of protesters do sort of think of themselves in this way. They think that there's some way in which I'm actually being harmed by this. And it's not just that the harm is that I'm living in a society which doesn't live up to all the ideal principles of justice and equal respect. And it's not just that, well, maybe the injustice might take over the entire world and eventually victimize everybody. It's something more immediate, something in which I just see how if I wanted to get out there and previously when I wanted to get out there and resist, I knew that I would face things like police brutality. I would face things like people trying to suppress my resistance. And that bothers me. And therefore, I have a reason, I think some of these protesters may be thinking, for getting out there and resisting the injustice, because my unfreedom in that sense is at stake too, not just that of the victims. So I want to ask you about the cover of this book. Um, it's been living here in my living room, dining room combo now for some time. And I keep staring at this finger. Uh, for listeners, it's a picture of a window, maybe of a bus, and a sort of unseen person's finger is pointing right at me. And I'm wondering, Tom, what role you had in creating this image, what you were hoping it would communicate um, about the theory of the book. Yeah, so you're right. It is a bus, I take it. It's in some dusty environment, uh, and it's an old bus, so it's meant to convey that it's probably a place where if it's a public, it may not be a public bus, it could be a private transportation company, but whatever it is, it probably doesn't have a lot of money for the upkeep of the bus. And you can't see the, it's the driver who's pointing, but you can't see the driver's face. You just see a finger pointing directly at you, the, the viewer, through basically the driver's window is pointing at you, the viewer. I guess it was the person who took the photo. And yes, I picked the photo out as the cover for the book. And the reason why I picked it was that I thought, I want an image which is going to suggest to those people who think that they are not in any important way harmed by injustices, that they think that that's something that happens to other people, but not to me, that actually you 
are harmed by injustices too. Not in the way that the victims are harmed. It's a different kind of harm, although it is also one that the victims themselves suffer because everybody, including the victims, has done this unjust, this un, this harm of unfreedom, so subjection to arbitrary interference. But it is a harm that is done to you too, even if you are the kind of person who thinks that I'm not in any important way harmed by injustices. That's something that happens to other people. And so really, I wanted it to speak to that thought, the thought that I'm not the kind of person who's in any important way harmed by injustices, and to say, actually, you are. And it's the case that for all injustices, you are harmed by them too. So that's why I picked the cover image. Thanks. So this book had a long, long uh, sort of a thoughtful process before it came into being. What are you working on now? What does the next project look like? So uh, it basically comes out of the paradox of identities and injustices that we began with, those three beliefs again, which are concern whether or not in thinking about injustices or in dealing with injustices, whether we have to see people in terms of these singular identities to see at least the people who are their victims as primarily in terms of the collective identity uh, to whom or against which that injustice is being done. And so what I'm trying to do is to now explore ways in which the concept of collective identity are there alternatives to it so that we could do use something for the same ends of diagnosing and remedying injustices, but use it in ways that maybe we can escape from this paradox of identities and justices in a different way than what this book had been suggesting? So could there be a way of thinking about ways in which people are subjected to particular uh, forms of treatment, which doesn't involve all the things that collective identity involves. Could we come up with different concepts for thinking about that? And could we also come up with different concepts for thinking about some of the other central ideas in the book, say solidarity as well, and the notion of the universal or universality, which says that everybody in a group is subjected to the same kind of thing, are there alternative concepts we could create that would give us different approaches to dealing with injustice? Because one of the main aims of this book is really to just bring out how many different approaches to in dealing with injustice there are already out there. And that's another thing that's impressed me with the current protests. There's actually a lot of different strategies for dealing with the injustice. And so what the next project will do is to try to think, are there new concepts we could create or that, in fact, are already out there being developed on the streets that theorists haven't yet really dug into that we could use to come up with even more different or new forms of resisting and perhaps ultimately abolishing injustices. So that's the next project. It's really at the moment, it's sort of at the very preparatory stages, but I'm hoping that I can really dig into it in the near future. And I'm inspired by what's going on out there in the streets right now and thinking about it. No, it sounds like a terrific project. It, one of the things I thought was really different about the book uh, was how you mapped popular journalism onto what we would normally consider to be scholarly genres of of, of political theory. And I'm wondering... Do you see aspects of unfreedom for all or what you're thinking about in the new project? Do you see that anywhere in the journalism that is accessible to us? Is there someone doing even part of your project so that people are hearing that version of how we how we should address justice? I do think that, well, I don't know about organized um organs of opinion, like say newspapers or what used to be newspapers or media channels, that I can think of anything that really basically says, yeah, um, we more or less think in terms of the ideas of unfreedom for all, or that there's this sense of arbitrary interference, which harms everybody in a society that does a systematic injustice and basically works on, thinks and engages in journalism, opinion formation in terms of that. 
assumption. I don't know of anything. But I do think that you can see some writers, some thinkers who are engaging in political public discussion who are sort of using those kinds of ideas. They're sort of are out there. I mean, I was partly in sort of inspired by them as I was writing the book and thinking about it. So I think you do see individual writers, thinkers, speakers using these ideas occasionally. And I don't know if there's going to be more and more of them. I'm just not sure whether it'll happen or not. But I think that especially people who are trying to find ways of saying that there's really a sense in which it's not just they're trying to challenge this tendency, which I see is very strong, to dualize, to say that it's always a matter of victims and perpetrators, right? You got the victims, you got the perpetrators, and they're always radically separate from one another and totally different. And then within themselves, so within the category of the victims, there's all this real similarity and so forth and the category of the perpetrators. I think there are also a lot of writers and speakers who are trying to challenge that and say, no, there's actually a lot more interconnection, but also a lot more complexity. There are other groups. There are the bystanders. There are people who are mixed. People are sort of half in and half out of the groups as well. And we need to think about them and their position too when we think about injustice. Um, So one writer who I've been reading and uh, liked a lot what I've heard so far who thinks in this vein is Thomas Chatterton Williams, uh, who just contributed to a really interesting symposium in Salma Gundi, I guess, back in the fall. And I think that there are a number of writers and speakers who are thinking along those lines and sort of pushing this kind of pluralistic approach and also this kind of uh, crossing over connecting approach to thinking about injustices, which at least this book was inspired by and the next project is also inspired by. Well, Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and to, um, it's a hard thing to take a book like this and to summarize it. So I appreciate your flexibility and, uh, and the time that you took to join us today. Well, thank you, Susan. It was a real pleasure and I love discussing it with you and I'm really looking forward to hearing your future podcasts. Well, thanks so much. The book is Unfreedom for All. How the World's Injustices Harm You, published by Oxford University Press in 2019. Uh, You can find it on the Oxford website. You can find it on your normal channels, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. You can try to support your local brick-and-mortar bookstore by ordering directly from them or possibly using bookshop.org, which will Send, bookstore, uh, send books from the bookstores directly to your house uh, with stores currently closed. So thanks so much, uh, Tom, and uh, I'll look forward to the next project. Thank you. 